Well, for tonight, you can uh, open your Bibles to Exodus. We'll be there a bunch tonight. And welcome back to our study that we've called Getting to Know the Old Testament. In this new series, we're going through the Old Testament one book at a time. We're spending one message on each book of the Bible. And with our time, we're not intending to study any one passage in particular, but we're trying to give just a broader introduction to the various books of the Bible, starting with, of course, the Old Testament and seeing more of their breadth. You might read through some of these Old Testament books on your own, but still come away struggling to grasp their structure, their flow, their purpose. You know, why was this rich? And I see the stories. You get that Sunday school level of understanding, but you know, what, how, how, what role does this book play in God's canon and just the revelation of God and his purpose? We're trying to give you some of that background and instruction at a slightly deeper level, although we're not drilling down at any one place in particular, helping you know these books, helping you get to know the Old Testament. And tonight, we're moving on to Exodus. Genesis and Exodus are kind of like a one-two punch in the beginning of the Bible. Stories filled with a lot of action, miracles, excitement. A lot happens in these two books from the creation of the world to the flood of the world to the Exodus, the Ten Commandments. Every book of the Bible has its place and significance, and they all matter. But Genesis and Exodus are special at the beginning. Genesis lays the foundation of all history and all theology and Exodus lays the foundation of Israel's history and Israel's theology. In addition, Exodus contains some of the most significant revelation of of God and his character. Genesis, he's the God who makes and destroys. But in Exodus, it really comes out he's the God also who redeems, who saves, rescues, delivers a chosen people. And that's a special theme we'll see. He's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God who calls the people out. So let's kind of get into this book now. We'll, we'll go kind of a similar outline. Most of these books, we'll, we'll keep this, starting with some basic background. Some basic background, like the title. You know, in Hebrew, for the Torah, the first five books, they, they labeled the book just by the opening phrase. And in Exodus, that would be, and these are the names. That's what they called Exodus. And these are the names, because that's the first phrase in the scroll. But later on in the Septuagint and the Vulgate, they really just went with the name Exodus, kind of for obvious reasons. It's the dominant event and uh, message in the book. The author is Moses. Moses wrote this book at the command of God in connection with his time with God at Sinai. There's plenty of internal evidence that directly says Moses wrote Exodus. For example, Exodus 24, verse 4. You can, you can turn and follow any time I message, uh, mention a passage in Exodus. You can follow along. You know, as the people affirm their covenant with God, it says, 24-4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. You see that in many other passages in Exodus as well, that uh, at God's instruction, Moses is writing down. He's the scribe for uh, what God was revealing up there on Mount Sinai. In addition, we've already learned how you know, the first five books of the Bible go together. The Torah, they're, they're one unit. It's like a five-volume book. And, uh, and in the Torah and throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, that the first five books were always attributed to Moses, the book of Moses, the law of Moses. Immediately in Genesis, or rather in Joshua, I should say, chapter 1, verse 7 through 8, God himself tells Joshua right away, he says, be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, has commanded you. Moses was so clearly identified as the mediator of this law uh, that that God referred to it as 
the law of Moses even still. The Torah is referred to as the book of Moses often and in scripture. Mosaic authorship is, is assumed and, and stated well. And furthermore, in the New Testament, when it comes to Exodus in particular, in Mark 12, 26, Jesus references Exodus 3, 6, the burning bush episode as part of the book of Moses. In Mark 7, 10, Jesus ascribes the Ten Commandments to Moses. You know, Moses said, honor your father and mother. In John 5, 46 through 47, Jesus literally affirms all of Moses' writings and said that Moses wrote about him. That's a, that's a strong passage where Christ attested the Mosaic authorship of the Torah and of Exodus. And well, it's good enough for Jesus, good enough for me. What about the date of this book, the date of the Exodus in this book? Well, it starts with Jacob's entrance in Egypt at the beginning, really the end of Genesis, that we had put at 1876 BC, a long time ago. But then it quickly fast forwards about 400 years, and it ends with the building of the tabernacle in 1445, 1446 BC. You know, there's, there's one way to determine the date of the Exodus, like where are we getting these numbers? It can be established that the date when Solomon began to build his temple was 966 BC. So if you, if you take that fact, you, you accept that from other study that the date when Solomon began to build the temple, 966 BC. Well, 1 Kings 6 verse 1 clearly says that Solomon began to build the temple 480 years after the Exodus. So you just put those numbers together and you get 1446 BC as the date of the Exodus. That's known as the early date. It's the date we accept Separately, you also have Exodus 12:40. It says Israel was down in Egypt for 430 years. So you go back another 430 years, that's where you get 1876. That's the date when Jacob and his family moved down to Egypt, 1876. But if you have the Exodus at around 1446 BC, that puts this in the time of the 18th dynasty in Egypt who uh, studied the dynasties of Egypt way back in like high school. You guys kind of remember that from world history, if you studied the dynasties of Egypt. Well, Amenhotep II was the pharaoh of the Exodus. It's very interesting how skeptics will point out that Egyptians have had a lot of well-known and very ancient history. It's, It's stunning to think how the time between the construction of the pyramids and who is it? Uh, Queen Sheba or, um, no, Caesar and um, who's the Egyptian queen? Help me someone. Cleopatra. So the time between the pyramids and Cleopatra, more time elapsed in that time than since after Cleopatra. It's just the, the amount of Egyptian history is vast. They're an ancient civilization. And they have a lot of recorded history. And all that recorded history, skeptics will point out, how the ten plagues, the exodus, and the parting of the Red Sea were never mentioned in the Egyptian historical records. But Christians will respond back, rightly so, that it's known that the pharaohs did not record their humiliating defeats and embarrassments. You don't put that in your history book if you're in control. And furthermore, time is proven to be on the side of biblical archaeology. The skeptics have tried to deny the historicity of biblical events over and over. But you just give it some time and more archaeological evidence is found. It's only ever supported the biblical record. And that being said, a very interesting find did occur. There's something called the Amarna tablets from the 1400s BC. That's the era of the Exodus. And it speaks of a period of chaos in Egypt by the Habiru people 
And many scholars believe that was the Hebrew people. They were known as the Hebrews. They weren't known as the Jews until after the exile, but they were the Hebrews. Abiru, many think there's a connection there. It's also another interesting corroboration, just kind of for the fun of it, but you know, Tetmos IV, he was the next pharaoh after the Exodus. And there's a discovery of something called the Dream Stella of Tutmos IV. And in that Stella indicates he was not the legal heir to the throne. That's an interesting corroboration because the legal heir would have died in the 10th plague when the death of the firstborn. And what do you know? The next pharaoh after the Exodus was not the legal heir. You know, you can't say much more than that, but it's an interesting type of corroboration. Well, let's finish with the audience when it comes to the basic background. The audience, you know, like Genesis, Exodus was directly written to the second generation of Israelites after the Exodus. They're on the plains of Moab. They're about to cross the Jordan and take the promised land. But of course, Exodus establishes the identity of Israel as a chosen nation before God. And so its relevance is for all national Israel for all time. And of course, we, we'll see how we drive application and benefit as the church later on. But it was directly written for, well, Israel. Now, let's talk a little bit about the structure and the overview of Exodus, maybe an outline. I Sorry, I just forgot to make a slide. And it's so much easier for a lot of you who are note takers. You, you love a good slide with an outline. I'll just say it and you can do your best to write it down if you're a note taker. But we'll use kind of a a, a topical uh, outline to Exodus, three parts. The first part is just, well, the setting, and that's just chapter one, the the setting. It sets it up, chapter one. It sets up the story where you have Jacob and his family. They move down to Egypt because of the famine. But time elapses. Joseph dies. The pharaohs don't know. Uh, they, They don't favor the Israelites anymore. Meanwhile, they're multiplying into a great nation. And so they enslave them before they become a nuisance. And so it sets up Israel is in need of salvation. They're oppressed. They need salvation. And so chapters 2 through 18, the next big section is, well, the salvation of Israel. The salvation, the deliverance, the redemption of Israel. Here we'll give you kind of like sub points for this outline. In chapters 2 through 4, you have the call of Moses. 2 through 4, the call of Moses. God hears the cries of his people and he raises up a deliverer, Moses. He sovereignly preserves him, though he almost died as an infant. He chooses him, calls him at the burning bush, sends him to set his people free before Pharaoh. And then you have chapters five and six where Moses requests. He makes his initial request of Pharaoh, let my people go. You know the story, Pharaoh refuses. And so in chapters seven through 11, You get the 10 plagues. Chapter 7 through 11, the 10 plagues. Pharaoh rejects. He hardens his heart. And so God sends 10 plagues on the land through Moses. And he proves his power over Pharaoh, over Egypt, over Egypt's gods. This then culminates with chapters 12 and 13, the Passover and the Exodus. Pharaoh is so hardened, he will not let the people go, no matter what it seems. This culminates with the final and most devastating plague. It's the death of the firstborn. In all the land, the firstborn will die. That includes Israel. But God made a provision where their firstborn could be saved or redeemed. They would sacrifice that Passover lamb and put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. God would pass over their house and spare them. 
That plague was so devastating, though, that, that Pharaoh finally expelled Israel. Then you get chapter 14, the Red Sea escape. Amazingly, even after all this, Pharaoh hardens his heart again. He chases after Israel to, to re-enslave them. But the Lord parts of the Red Sea that they might escape. And that uh, later comes down crashing on Pharaoh's army who pursues. And Pharaoh's army is destroyed. Israel is finally free. They have escaped. That goes right into chapter 15. This is verses 1 through 21. Chapter 15, 1 through 21 is known as the Song of Moses. It's just a, an insert right there. Uh, a psalm written by Moses of God's victory and deliverance after the Exodus. In the rest of chapter 15 through chapter 18, God now, now pro, uh, provides for Israel to Sinai. So God provides to Sinai. Israel's free. And now they're making their trek to Mount Sinai. Long before the Exodus, when God first called Moses, he said, when, you, when, you, when all this happens and you are delivering the people, you come bring them to me at Mount Sinai. And that, you will know I am God because you will find me at Mount Sinai. And so they're on their way to Sinai. On the way, the people start to complain. But nonetheless, God provides water, manna, and bread. That's all in chapters 15 through 18. So that's kind of the first part of the, the redemption of Israel, the salvation of Israel. Chapters 2 through 18. The next big section, the final section, is God's covenant with Israel. And that's 19 through 40. The salvation of Israel, now the covenant with Israel, 19 through 40. Here Israel finally arrives at Mount Sinai. It's where God told them to, to go. And God is going to take now that this group of former slaves and turn them into his special possession. So you have chapter 19. That's the meeting at Sinai. The meeting at Sinai. Israel converges on Sinai and God shows up. Mount Sinai erupts with lightning, thunder, fire, smoke, earthquakes. And God determines to make this nation into a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, if they would obey his covenant. So he comes to enter into covenant with this people as a nation. In chapter 20, it begins and you have, right off the bat, the Ten Commandments. Chapter 20 is the Ten Commandments. The people respond in fear. That continues in chapters 21 through 23, which we just call additional commandments after the Ten Commandments. They're still at Sinai and God lays out more laws for Israel to live as his people before him. Chapter 24, the covenant is confirmed. The covenant is confirmed. Moses relays the initial words of the covenant to the people and they affirm their commitment to God. They say, we, we will be your people. We will do all these words of the covenant. All that God has spoken, they will do. We'll see how long that lasts, but in chapter 24, they seem determined to follow God. Then you get into a big section, chapter 25 through 31. That's laws for the tabernacle. It's really interesting. You know, only two chapters describe the creation of the world. Then you have seven chapters giving precise details on the ritual worship of God. Specific stipulations for how God is to be approached and appeased and worshipped. This features the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, golden accessories, an inner room, an outer court, a priesthood, their garments, and initial sacrifices. None of these details are trivial. They teach Israel that this God is holy and entering into his special presence is no small thing. It's not to be trifled with. He's to be approached with 
reverence and full obedience on his terms. But of course, that doesn't happen. While God is giving Moses instruction for how he is to be approached with holiness and reverence, what are the people doing? Chapter 32, the golden calf. They, they think Moses is long gone. They haven't seen him for 40 days. And so the people immediately go astray and they make an image of a golden calf, which they worshiped as their God who brought them out of Egypt. And you know, God, as you know, threatens to judge them all, but Moses intercedes for them and God relents. He appeals to God's covenant promise. God stays his judgment, really just hits pause on his judgment. But the two stones of the Ten Commandments are destroyed as Moses comes down the mountain and in outrage. Interesting, though, what happens after chapters 33 and 34 is God's glory revealed. God's glory revealed. After this episode, Moses longs to know this God. Just who is this God? You think about human history so far, like, where's this God been? Well, he's been on his throne. He's been there, but he's not really revealed himself. He's not taken these drastic steps to reveal himself. But now he is in a big way. And Moses wants to know just who, who is this God? And he, he prays, God, show me your glory. And God says, okay. He won't see him, but he places Moses in the cleft of the rock. He causes his glory to pass in front of him. And that glory, though, consists of the revelation of God's character. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, get to know that passage. God also replaces the two tablets of the Ten Commandments and he renews his covenant with his people. That's really good news because this is not the last time Israel will go astray, right? But this shows that covenant renewal is possible even after Israel breaks the covenant right away. A covenant renewal is possible. Then we finish with chapters 35 through 40. And that's the tabernacle constructed. The tabernacle is constructed according to God's detailed plans. And despite Israel being a wayward people, Exodus ends with the glory of God, that glory cloud coming, descending on the tabernacle, filling the tabernacle such that not even Moses can go inside. And this is showing God is dwelling in the midst of his people again. This is a huge step in redemptive history. And ever since creation and the fall, this is the the closest man has been to to dwelling with the presence of God once again, as intended. Not the end of the story, but it's a huge leap forward in, in redemptive history. God's plan to redeem, restore the world, call people to himself, to dwell in their midst. Exodus ends with the glory descending on the tabernacle. So hopefully, especially if you're not that familiar with Exodus, that gives you a little overview. You kind of get the breadth of it. Let's talk more specifically about the purpose, though. Like, is is there a purpose to all this? And and there is, not just history. It is history, but it, it has a purpose. Exodus picks up where Genesis left off. Isaac and his family are forced down to Egypt because of the famine. But they prosper because Joseph is a ruler. Israel multiplies. But as the generations pass, Joseph dies. The pharaohs don't know them anymore. They don't like them anymore. They're enslaved and they're heavily oppressed in Egypt. That's where, that's, remember that setup. Now you have to remember that the special theme of Genesis, last time when we covered Genesis, we focused on a special theme. And that was the Abrahamic covenant. God's covenant 
with Abraham and his descendants. God was initiating with Abraham a plan to bless the world. That plan funneled through one man, Abraham, and then his son Isaac, then his son Jacob, who uh, became Israel, and then Jacob's 12 sons, who became national Israel. God promised to Abraham that he would multiply his descendants into a mighty nation and give them an inheritance that the promised land. But you know, Abraham died. He never saw those promises come to fruition. And now being enslaved in Egypt, it seemed like these promises were long forgotten. They were enslaved for some 400 years. That's longer than America has been a nation. They were just wasting away, enslaved in Egypt. God was saying nothing. He was doing nothing, at least that we know of. Nothing recorded. Where was God for those 400 years? Where were his promises? Well, God's promises were not forgotten. He moves things according to his timetable. That being said, look, one of God's promises was to multiply Israel into a mighty nation, a great nation. And well, that had happened. They were a numerous, vast people in Egypt. They were a great nation. Only now God was going to bring them into the promised land. God is always faithful to his word. The timing marches according to his hidden will, but all of his promises will come to pass. And and Exodus marks the next step in the fulfillment of God's promises to and through Abraham. Exodus begins with 70 Israelites coming down to Egypt, but you fast forward a little bit and there's about 2 million of them. About 600,000 men are recorded, but the census didn't capture the women and children. So it's roughly about 2 million who went free in the Exodus. Also, Exodus begins with Israel enslaved in Egypt, but by the end, they're free and they're on the way to the promised land. God has remembered his people and he is progressing his eternal plan of salvation. And then in the midst of this plan, now you have, have a nation, national Israel, with whom God will establish another covenant called the Mosaic Covenant. And God's promises to Abraham and his descendants, they will stand forever. But now God is, is, is setting apart Israel as a chosen and holy nation before him. And so at this stage, God's blessings to the world are now going to come through this chosen nation. And so Exodus tells us the origin of Israel as God's chosen nation. So that is one very clear and very significant purpose to Exodus. It tells us the origin of Israel as God's special chosen nation. There's another main purpose to Exodus, which of course is related. All the events of Exodus were orchestrated and designed by God himself so as to disclose more of the character and nature of God. Exodus is Israel's origin story. But at the same time, everything that happened in Exodus is is directly tied to the self-disclosure of God. He's doing all this to reveal himself to his people and to the world that that all the nations might know he is the only God. He's the one true God. God is, is, is further disclosing himself to Israel and the whole world. Give you a few examples of this. You know, back in Exodus 1 and 2, you got the birth of Moses, the divine preservation of Moses, you know, in the the reed basket down the river, calling of choose, the calling and choosing of Moses. It just shows God is a sovereign God. He works all things out according to his plans and purposes. Pharaoh wanted to kill all the, the male children of Israel. 
These are too numerous. But he couldn't stop it. The midwives protected them. God sovereignly protected Moses. And what do you know? He gets rescued by Pharaoh's household. Right? And he grows up in Pharaoh's own household. That, that's a, a mark of divine providence if you've ever seen one. Chapter 2, look at 23 and 25 in chapter 2. And Israel cries out. It says, now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died. And the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage. They cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the sons of Israel. God took notice of them. And we didn't have time for this in our Genesis study, but that word remembered. It's kind of a theme in Genesis and throughout. That God sees the affliction of his people and then he remembers. He doesn't forget, but just goes to show you, he, he takes notice. He sees. It's time to act. He's remembered. And as they cry out to God because of their oppression, well, he shows he's a God who hears, who sees, who remembers his covenant and fulfills it. He delivers. Yes, I have a significant passage that we can't really pass up. Exodus 3.14, God calls Moses at the burning bush. He shows his holiness. Take off your sandals. The ground is holy. And God reveals himself to Moses. Who is this God? God said to Moses, I am. Who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God is, is even in calling Moses, is revealing just who he is. He's the holy, self existent, eternal God, transcendent, yet at the same time, imminent, close. He's the God of their fathers. He's making himself known. He's revealing his covenant name, Yahweh, which the forefathers did not know. They knew the name Yahweh. But they didn't know its covenant significance that God is going to reveal in connection with the Exodus. They never knew the redemption of God like this. He's making himself known. And then chapter 6, just one more example. It's the whole book, but a couple more examples in chapter 6. It's a key chapter for relating God's purpose for Israel and the Exodus. In chapter 6, 2 through 5, and as God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. And I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage and I have remembered my covenant. Here God reiterates his covenant with Abraham as, as his driving force behind redeeming Israel. Israel's descendants, they've multiplied, but they haven't taken the land. God hears, he remembers, he delivers. And then look at verse 6 through 8. He says, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I also will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land, which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'll give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Now, God also reveals to and through Moses his deliverance and how it will magnify his sovereignty and power. He will do this. They will know he is God. They're going to know after this, there's only one God. It's their God. It's Yahweh, the God of their fathers. It's the only God. 
Notice in verses 6 through 8, the repetition of the phrase, I will. They don't do anything. They just sit there. God's going to do all this from the plagues to the Red Sea to, to bringing them out to giving them the land. This is just God's doing. And it's all by his mighty outstretched arm. It's all vastly supernatural. The odds are against them. But he will do this, that they will know he is God. And later we find that the nations may know as well. There's only one God, and it's Yahweh. There's many more examples, but Exodus goes a long way in just revealing the character of God, the nature of God, the purposes of God. It's, it's a huge revelation of, of God. And it's the same God. We're not national Israel, but we do serve the same God. And we too are to learn quite a bit about just who our God is. We should be like Moses. Lord, show me your glory. Who are you? What are you like? Who is this God who sent his son for us? We learn about him much in Exodus. Now let's move on. We have a little section here, which I called last time a you know, special focus. And in these books of the Old Testament, I'm going to try and highlight you know, a special focus. Just something that's so significant, it's worth its own little attention. With Genesis, that was the Abrahamic covenant. Here in Exodus, it is, well, the Exodus. Let's do a little special focus on the event of the Exodus. The Exodus itself. You know, after the cross. So a cross is number one. But after the cross, the Exodus is clearly the most important redemptive event in God's salvation plan. It's certainly the greatest redemptive act of God in the Old Testament. And the Exodus becomes embedded in the very DNA of national Israel forever. And its reverberations are felt throughout the whole Old Testament. Like it just keeps bringing up the Exodus. Like today as Christians, we constantly look back to the cross We were redeemed by Jesus on the cross. We're told to remember him, remember that event often, that we might worship him and live rightly. We were given the Lord's Supper, this memorial meal to help us do just that. Well, God wanted national Israel to constantly look back to the Exodus. That's when they were redeemed as a nation. And for the same reasons, he wanted them remembering that. He likewise gave them the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that they might never forget God's redemption. They were to continually remember that the God of heaven purchased them as a nation. And so collectively as a nation, they should fear this God, remember him, walk in his ways, worship him, not forsake him. So accordingly, all throughout the Old Testament, you have just references of the Exodus event. The prophets calling Israel to remember the God who rescued them. I mean, this this event is what defines Israel as the people of God. This is God purchasing them. So, for example, you know, read Psalms 105, 106. It's a poetic retelling of the Exodus. Even get in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen, he's about to be martyred. He gives his defense. You read that in Acts 7. And the bulk of his defense, he's just retelling the story of God's redemption in the Exodus. It's just all throughout. God wanted each and every generation to remember the Exodus, that they might remember the God of the Exodus. The Exodus was designed and orchestrated by God to, as we learned, to powerfully demonstrate he is God. There's no other God. Only Yahweh is God. You read Exodus 1 through 10, first 10 chapters. 
And multiple times, God himself states his purpose. Like, why are you doing this? Why the 10 plagues? He tells them over and over. It's so that Israel might know Yahweh is God. That Egypt might know Yahweh is God. It's to show that God is in their midst. It's to show that there's no one like God in all the earth. It's to show that, it's to proclaim that God is powerful and to, to proclaim his name throughout all the earth. Those phrases just appear over and over uh, from the mouth of God himself as to why he's doing this. He's just publishing his name. He's the only God. And he's proving it. A quick example, turn to chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Why were there 10 plagues? Why not just one or two? Wouldn't that have sufficed? You can just jump straight to the death of the firstborn. And if God wanted, they would have let the people go. Now, this is a little bit of meat, but the reason there's 10 plagues is, is God, uh, you know, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but at the same time, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And God reveals one reason he did it, that he could have more time to magnify his name by pouring out more plagues, more wrath, more judgment, and to, to show his power. It's pretty stunning. Look at chapter 10, 1 and 2. The, the plagues are progressing. It's, then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh. For I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, that you may know I am the Lord. And also look at chapter 11, verse 9. Same thing, he says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, so that, my wonders will be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Why 10 plagues? Because 10 is better than one. 10 is greater than one. 10 shows more of God's power and might to deliver his people and to show his, his strong arm. Yeah, one plague may have sufficed, but, but God was orchestrating these events to put his power, might, and sovereignty on display to overwhelmingly show he has the power to create, to destroy, to kill, to make alive, to save to judge. He's revealing his glory and the impotence of all other gods. There's no other God. Israel was to never forget this. This was an impression that could not be forgotten. They were to recall the Exodus that in their current day, they might well trust this same God, this God who can deliver, this God who can do all this. And along these lines, the Exodus event has lasting significance for the church as well. We're not national Israel. This is not our national history. We were not redeemed like this as a nation. But we know the redemption of God. He has redeemed us individually and eternally in Christ. And we know that the greater Passover lamb has come. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says that Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. And you probably know, we can't flesh it all out, but there's just numerous parallels between the Exodus and the Passover event and the death of Jesus on the cross, and the Lord's Supper. That, we'll save that study for another day, but of special note, you know, Christ's death itself was a type of second exodus. And when you realize that, God was redeeming a people. He was calling them out, purchasing them from slavery. Only we were not being redeemed from slavery to Egypt, but from slavery to sin, Satan, and death itself. He was breaking those bonds. And so now as we... Uh, we as Christians, as we study the Exodus, this is not our national history, but it's still telling us about our God. 
the same God and his redeeming character. And that doesn't change. He is a God who remembers his people in their affliction. He remembers his covenant. He remembers his promise and he delivers. And when God determines to deliver a people, there's no force in heaven and earth that can stay his outstretched arm. We're reminded nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And God sets his love on a people and by his grace, that's us. We can't explain that, but he set his love on us and called us in Christ. And when he does so, there's no power strong enough to stop him from delivering that people and bringing them to his promised land. And you know, read Hebrews, we have our promised land in heaven as well. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Our exodus will be complete. Right now, we're in the wilderness. We have been delivered. We're not in the promised land yet, but we can trust this God to bring us through. As we follow him, we remember him and just cling to him. Now, instead of, uh, to finish our time like Genesis, I finished with some major themes. But instead of doing that, I'm going to give you a second special focus, which will hit a lot of the major themes. But I couldn't get around it. Exodus just has two really significant elements that we have to talk about. The first dominates the first half. It's the Exodus. The second dominates the second half. So we'll just finish our time with this. It's the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant. So we'll finish up here with a second special focus, the Mosaic Covenant. Exodus is kind of like one of those movies where like the second half of the movie feels like a different movie. Like it's quite unlike the first half of the movie. You know, the first half, Israel, it's a, it's a salvation story. Israel's enslaved, they're oppressed, but then they're delivered, they're free. And by Exodus 18, I mean, they're free. They're on their way to the promised land. You, you might expect the story to be over, like success, they're free. But that's really just the beginning of a whole new story and a second part. And so Exodus 19 through 40 is the second part. The dominant event in the first part, 1 through 18, is the Exodus. But once they're free and they're at Sinai, the dominant event in the second part, 19 through 40, is the Mosaic Covenant. Turn to Exodus 19. Let's go there now. And so God has brought Israel to Sinai. Why? Well, he's going to formally enter into covenant or a binding agreement with them to make them his people. You kind of see a summary of this in 19, 3 through 6. It says, Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain saying, Thus he shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Here's God determining to call Israel formally as a nation. He's entering into covenant with them. This is followed by the giving of his law, which you might say that's kind of like their constitution. Israel was to be a theocracy. That's where church and state are like the same thing. And this law that the covenant stipulations was like their constitution and bill of rights and everything rolled into one. This was their national identity, their charter document. It consists of the Ten Commandments, which summarize God's requirements, 
But many other commands and regulations were given, all of which stipulate how the people were to live as God's people. What's that look like? If God's going to choose a nation, he's kind of put them over here. You guys are separate now. You're my people. That's going to probably look different than the way all the other nations do things, how they are governed, how they worship, how they war, commit war, how they serve one another, how they deal with marriage issues. Probably going to look different in the Mosaic Covenant and the rest of the stipulations show, yeah, God's ways are different. And this is what life will be like if you were to be God's holy people, a chosen nation, a kingdom of priests. So we refer to this covenant as a Mosaic covenant because Moses was the mediator. Mosaic covenant is related to the Abrahamic covenant, but it's distinct at the same time. In the Abrahamic covenant, God unconditionally promised to bless Abraham and his descendants forever. This included his physical seed, Israel, to make them a great nation. The Mosaic Covenant came about as an expression of God's blessing on national Israel. But the Mosaic Covenant was not an unconditional covenant. That's the difference. His promise to Abraham, his promise to David, those were unconditional, unilateral promises. But this Mosaic Covenant was a conditional, bilateral, two-way covenant. And it hinged on Israel's obedience. Like, if you want these blessings, you have to obey If you do not obey the stipulations of the covenant, you'll be cursed. That really comes out later in Deuteronomy. We'll see that in a little bit. And the Mosaic covenant was not a means of salvation, but it was an expression of Israel just living as God's people in God's land with God as their king. This is what it looks like. And it's only going to work though, of course. It's going to lead to their blessing if, if they have faith in God, if they believe this God and then live like this, it'll all work out. But as we know, for most of their history, Israel was not believing and therefore they were not obedient. They did not keep the stipulations of this covenant and they fell under the curse, which ultimately led to their exile, which we'll find in Deuteronomy. God himself said that was going to happen. Nevertheless, though, this, the stipulations of this Mosaic covenant, what God expected of them and demanded of them, it really forms the backdrop for the rest of the Old Testament, for the rest of Israel's history and the need for a new covenant. This is the old covenant. And as Israel fails, because they can't keep it. You read Romans 7, this law, it's good. It's holy. God's stipulations, they were good. Israel couldn't keep them because they needed new hearts. They needed new birth. They needed salvation to believe in God and then walk in his ways. And God was going to do that for them with a new covenant. You want to appreciate that? Well, you spend some time just understanding, soaking in that the old covenant. Now let's talk about just some key features of the Mosaic covenant. Just so you help you get it, get to know it a little bit better. The key features of the Mosaic covenant. Of course, you have the Ten Commandments. It's what we most think of. Known as the Decalogue. Literally, it means the ten words. In Exodus 20, when God gives it, it literally says that the ten words you find it in Exodus 20, 1 through 17. They're also repeated later in Deuteronomy 5, 6 through 21. It's only two positive commands. Remember the Sabbath, honor your father and mother. The rest, the remaining eight, are prohibitions and negative commands. The first four relate to loving God, you might say. And the final six relate to loving your neighbor. But they summarize what God requires of the people. 
They summarize the covenant stipulations for maintaining a relationship between Israel and Yahweh. But these were not the only commandments. So a second feature would be the law. We'll just call it the rest of the law, the rest of the commands, the law. And God gave Israel in Exodus and beyond a multitude of commands beyond the ten. And you're regulating life for Israel under God and the land. These laws are expanded in Exodus through Deuteronomy. In total, God gave Israel 613 commands in this we call Mosaic law. These, again, were never meant to be means of salvation, but they were meant to direct life for a people who already belonged to God. And many of Israel's laws also served to to just make them super distinct from the pagan nations around them, that they would stand out. That will be a a focus in Leviticus for next time. Another uh, emphasis or or part of the Mosaic law was the Sabbath. As you think about the Mosaic covenant, the Sabbath was a huge element. The Sabbath was the sign of the covenant. The sign of the Abrahamic covenant, circumcision. The sign of the Mosaic Covenant was the Sabbath. Every seventh day was to be a day of rest for them, rest from their labor. And every seventh day when they didn't work, they were to be reminded of of who their God was, who they were. Why are we not working this day again? Like there's a lot of work to be done and we need to harvest that field, but we can't. Why not? They were to be reminded, oh, we're we're a people. We're God's people. We were bought by God. He told them we, we were and delivered as well from Israel, or rather from Egypt and slavery. And uh, God provided manna for us in the wilderness. And on the seventh day, there was no manna. But he provided a double portion on the sixth day that we might trust him. Right? Every Sabbath, these thoughts would should come flooding back and reminding them just, we are a people of God. We've been bought by this God. We're called to follow him and live according to his ways. Is to be is to remind them and bring them to greater dependence and faith in this God to provide for their needs. Sabbath is obviously huge in Israel's history. And after this, the Sabbath becomes like a barometer for Israel's spiritual health. health. Now, how, how, how serious is Israel in keeping the whole covenant? We get a pretty good idea by, well, were they keeping the Sabbath? And in the areas or the, the time periods of their history when they weren't keeping the Sabbath, well, what do you know? They weren't keeping anything else either. And they would be later be judged for that. But nonetheless, the Sabbath is, is a huge element of the Mosaic Covenant. You also have the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Israel observed the Passover originally in connection with the 10th plague, the death of the firstborn. But thereafter, God made it a special day of observance for them, along with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. These special days were created so that, that the current and future generations might never forget God and what he did for Israel. Remembering how they were a people bought with a price would inspire Israel to worship this God and, and serve him anew. And even today, never underestimate the importance, at least in God's eyes, of these rites of remembrance in impressing the word of God and the will of God upon the next generation. God set these things up with the future generations in view. That they, because they, they didn't witness the Exodus. They didn't witness the manna. They, those are just stories at that point. Like we've not seen Christ. We didn't witness his resurrection. But God wanted every generation to remember, pass down that, that 
they, the next generation, the word and will of God, the works of God would still be impressed upon them. Look at Exodus 12 real quick. And you'll see that fact is God establishes the Passover, not as a one-time thing, but it's to be a recurring annual remembrance and celebration. Exodus 12, look at 24. God says to them, and you shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land, which the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall observe this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, it's a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians, but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshiped. We'll see that reemerge in Deuteronomy, the significance of, of, of many elements of the law and just teaching the next generation who God is, what he's done, that they might know him and live before him. All right, that's a little lesson we can learn, the importance of teaching our next generation of who God is, what he's done in Christ and the cross and really all scripture, that they might likewise know him and, and follow him. Well, finally here, last on this list of kind of key elements of the Mosaic Covenant, you would see uh, sacrifices and the tabernacle. Sacrifices and the tabernacle is part of this covenant. And we're going to save the sacrificial system for next time for Leviticus. That's clearly the special focus for Leviticus. But Exodus gives uh, a huge amount of attention, the most, to the tabernacle itself. It's that the center point of Israel's worship system that God and calling this people, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. He also determined to dwell in their midst once again, literally in the tabernacle. His special presence would be in the Holy of Holies on top of the Ark of Covenant and throned above the cherubim. God would dwell in the midst of his people. But God was perfectly holy. The people were not. So still some separation remained. From the veil of the Holy of Holies to the tabernacle itself, to the courtyard. Only the priests could really minister in the, in the tabernacle. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies once a year. There still was separation. A lot more details behind that as well. It's that the whole system that God had set up though, that God prescribed. You read these chapters and in connection with the tabernacle, the instruments, you know, the, the, the showbread, the golden instruments and all that stuff. I would tell you, don't skip those chapters. Don't just blow by them. Don't, don't think they're boring or insignificant. Just labor to understand this God who demands the strict, tedious, meticulous worship of him on his terms because he's holy. And even after all this, the people were still separate from his full presence. Even after all this stuff. But I would just urge you to just kind of drink in a full understanding of the old covenant, the tabernacle and all that goes with it. It's only going to lead you to a greater appreciation of the new covenant. Because as you know, there we find a greater heavenly tabernacle, find a greater sacrifice, a greater priest, a greater promised land, greater access to the presence of God. All of course centers on Christ, but you're not going to be able to, to fully appreciate the significance of Christ and his covenant and the, and the new covenant. If you don't understand the old. And that begins right in the New Testament. John 1.14. Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Word for dwelt in the Greek. Going back to the Septuagint. It's the same word for tabernacle. That Jesus came to tabernacle among us. He came. He is 
the special presence of God, Emmanuel, God with us, it's Jesus. And uh, we're united to him by faith. We get a privilege of, of being welcome into God's family and his special prevalence, uh, presence. rather. But the depth of appreciating that comes from this feeling, the holiness of God in the Old Testament, that the closeness, but still the separation, you're still not allowed in. This is a separate God. He's too holy. He's too holy for you. Nothing you can do about that. But in Christ, he's done something about that. Because in his love, for whatever reason, for his glory and our good, he wants us in. He's invited us back in. And so let's read through Exodus, just remembering the same God who delivers his people. But let's thank him that, hey, we get to live on this side of the cross. And that we've partaken in his eternal redemption. We're no longer separated by that veil. And we who are in Christ, were invited into the, the very family of God and his special presence forever. So let's remember and, and praise the same God who redeems. And that's Exodus, at least in an hour. <laughs> Next time's Leviticus. I hope you were uh, blessed by that and edified. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Exodus. It really is a, a cherished book, uh, primarily because we just we get to see you, uh, this God who made the world, but in many ways was silent thereafter for many years, revealing himself to just one person, to Abraham, to a few families thereafter. But in Exodus, uh, the tidal wave of God's presence and revelation just comes, and we see this, this mighty God who, who saves, who judges, who redeems, who pours out wrath, yet shows a, a covenant love, an everlasting love. Yet we get to know you, our God, and we still need to behold that. Your, your, your character has not changed, and though we're not national Israel, it's not our national history per se, but we still get to behold our, our God who made us and saved us and, and delivered us in our own exodus from slavery to sin and Satan and, and death itself. We need that remembrance daily. We need to, to set our mind on this daily and focus on uh, the God who delivers. That encourages us, that comforts us, that strengthens us knowing nothing can separate us from the love of this God. He sets out to, de- to deliver and well, we will be delivered. That gives us hope and courage to endure and face the future. And as we do so, Lord, just help us to well, walk the walk, to keep your new covenant by your spirit and to walk in your ways, uh, that you might be glorified, that we might be blessed and that the nations and the people around us might know still You're the only God. There's no God like our God. We remember that and live that out. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.